so this morning, could you just stand up as we read the Word of God? And we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah chapter 1, one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's a book of victory. It's a book of action. Nehemiah could be also called a type of the Holy Spirit. There's so many wonderful lessons, inspiring lessons for leaders and people in general. Chapter 1. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, in late autumn in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. That's a tongue twister. I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and how things were going on in Jerusalem. These Jews were part of a second group of Jewish people who had been exiled from Babylon. So a great victory had already occurred. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and distress. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire, which meant the enemy could come and go. The enemy of our soul can come and go. And here was his response. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Father, we come to you this morning. Well, I'm talking about turning the tide in our day. Pointing people in our worlds to you. And sometimes when we look at the immensity of the challenge, Lord, it would be really easy to be discouraged. But we're going to learn this morning from a man of God, the king's cupbearer, who had a burden, Lord, and who himself, with God and a few others, was able to wrought a great victory in his day, in a time where opposition was great. The enemy was greatly at work trying to destroy the people of God. And so this morning, may we take heart and learn lessons for this wonderful man of God, Nehemiah, as we as new hopers in the body of Christ all over the world, try to turn the tide, bring people back to the knowledge of God in our world. Amen. You may be seated. Turning the tide in our day. The lesson that I shared the last time I preached was one of the most important things was knowing who we were in Christ and our authority in relationship to the world. If we don't know who we are as the body of Christ and the authority that we have, we're not going to understand our importance in dealing with the sin of our society and our world. So it's very important to know who we are in Christ, the authority that we have. He said that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood called out of darkness into his marvelous light, the body of Christ. And so that was the starting point. But this morning, I want to talk about, when we get to the real nuts and bolts of the solution, it all starts with a burden. It all starts with a burden. When we were in the prayer group this morning, I was talking to the four men who were with me and my wife, and I was talking about even in ministry, leading a worship team, preaching, teaching, leading men, leading women, you will not be effective as a leader if you do not have a burden for your group. Yes, right. 
it'll then just become a job. And what happens is when a few people show up, you get, get discouraged. But if you have a burden like Nehemiah had, no matter how discouraging things look, because you have that burden, that unction from the Holy Spirit that I must do something, you will prevail and get the job done. So before I even get started, anything that you want to do for the work of the Lord in any ministry or even sharing your faith, it has to start with a burden. In the Pentecostal church, we talk about the unction of the Holy Spirit because we are driven by the Spirit of God as we've been learning through Pastor Cliff. So it starts with a burden. Bill Hybels, in one of his books, said, and I believe it, and it's scriptural, that the local church is the only hope for the world. That makes sense. The local church is the body of Christ. He is the head. We have been part of the great commission to go into the world. And so we are the only hope. And I think today, in view of all the things that are going on that we see in our world that are so negative, so unrighteous, so dark, we need to realize as believers that we are the only hope. We are the army of the Lord. So, with all that understood, hopefully, we need to move to action, to find what our specific purpose is. In our sermon today, we find that Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. His job was to drink the wine before they gave it to the king because somebody wanted to assassinate the king. It was a good job, but it was risky. And he had to hope the king had no enemies. But he really was living a blessed life in a Jew in the palace of this king. He had it made. He had everything going on until he asked some of his friends from Judah, how are things going on back home? And as soon as he heard the dilemma that those people were in, his heart was touched. Are our hearts touched when injustices happen? I often talk about when I hear of incidents ha happening in our country or even on foreign seas that I know are really awful and painful and ungodly, my heart is touched. I don't rest that easy, even if I'm living somewhat of a comfortable life but now. My heart goes out to those that are suffering. I think about the persecuted church, those that are dying for their faith. We come to beautiful churches. We have beautiful worship. They go to churches where they could die when they leave the building. I think of those people. How are my brethren in those worlds doing today? They are part of the body of Christ. They are my brothers and sisters. I'm going to meet them in heaven. They are my family. And this is what we're talking when we're talking a burden. So we're going to see what this man did to get the job done, and he did. The wall would go on to be built in a record 52 days with all kinds of opposition, but it wouldn't have happened if one man with God had not heard of the problems that were occurring and made a stand and made up his mind, I have to do something. He had a burden. The birth of a burden. Nehemiah, you might as well say, is almost consumed by the plight of his people. A burden is birth when we see things going on that are not in alignment with God's plans and purposes. See, we're like God's watchmen on the walls, what the scripture says. And when we see things occurring in our lives, sinful things where destruction is taking place, 
Things that are not in alignment with God's purposes for man, for us. If you have a burden, your heart is touched. It isn't business as usual anymore. You are brought to a place of prayer. You are brought to a place where a burden, a concern is birthed in your spirit. And like we were learning through Pastor's sermon last week about the Holy Spirit, these burdens, these gifts will not operate unless they're birthed by the Holy Spirit that is within us as his church. And so we see that whenever we see things, again, that are not in alignment, it could be in our family, in our neighborhoods, in our church, in our world, the heart of a true believer is touched and moved. And we are thinking, I have to do something begin to pray and move into action. I have to tell you also that a burden will often produce what I call righteous indignation or anger. We don't like to talk about anger too much, do we? But we should be angry about sin, shouldn't we? We should be angry about the things that are destroying our youth and our world and our nation today. How the enemy is using so many things to come against the family, to come against our young people. And we cannot just sit by idly and say, I guess that's just the way it is. There has to be a spirit of righteous anger and indignation that rises up within our hearts to do something to reverse. Because we believe in intercessory prayer as one tool. Intercessory prayer, if we understand it, is supposed to to reverse wrongdoing, to overturn things that are not right in the eyes of the Lord. So we are moved. Righteous indignation. I think of young shepherd boy David when he comes to the battlefield one day and there was this big old giant named Goliath. It ticked him off, didn't it? You're saying you're too small, you don't have what it takes. This little cat was mad. Try to put some armor on him. It don't fit. I don't use it. I've already know my own stuff that I've got in hand. He tells the giant, you have defied the God of the armors, armies of Israel. And today I'm going to remove your head and the birds of the air will eat it. Now that is righteous anger. The army of Israel was scared. They were all in the foxhole, including Saul, scared to death. This upset this man of God because he says, my God is not going to be embarrassed by this giant. I will take him down by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's mine. See, that type of anger. Now, if we look in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, verses 19 to 20, there was a Sambalat and Tobiah. They were the key enemies of Israel. They were also governors and leaders in provinces surrounding Judah. So when Sambalat, Tobiah, and Gisham the Arab heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked? Mocking the people of God. I replied, Nehemiah, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall. Here's where the anger comes. Here's where making a stand comes. Here is I'm going to do something begins. But you, too, 
have no share, no legal right or historic claim in Jerusalem. You have no right, no share, historic claim with the people of God. We can translate it today. That has taken the authority that we have in Jesus Christ. We can speak the same thing to the enemy. You have no right, no heritage to run and run amok among the people of God and even in the world today. Our Savior defeated you on the cross of Calvary and we as his army are putting a stop to it in the arena of prayer. We're making a stand. That's when the authority comes up and the anger comes up. And of course, a burden is also reinforced and blessed when we know that we have the power in Christ to succeed. 2 Corinthians 10 forces, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. If we would but pray, if we would but believe, if we would, be, we would but stand on the promises of God's word, we will have the victory because the God of heaven has our back. Amen. Isn't that so wonderful? Yes. The weapons of the Spirit are mighty, but, but we don't always wield our weapons. Oh, right. we, we have all the tools we need. We have the Word. We have prayer. We've got the Holy Spirit. We're armed and dangerous. We're ready to pursue the enemy. It's true. We just need to recognize it, and we need to exercise those gifts today. I don't know about you, church, but I have a real burden for the way things are going in our world today. Do you feel it in your hearts? Is it just every day is business as usual? It, it shouldn't be with us. We should be disturbed to the point and burned to the point to say, Lord, I'm going to do my part to help turn the tide. I'm going to be a part of the church. I'm going to do what I can to help promote the gospel in my family, in my city, in my world. Because we are scattered throughout the earth engaging the enemy every day but we have to have a burden there was a story once about a woman that said came up to the pastor i've been praying and praying sometimes it takes a while by the way before i get started i've been praying and praying for my son to get saved and he hasn't gotten saved and the pastor i guess he had some uh perception of what was really going he says you know what the problem sister your eyes are too dry and he wasn't talking about visine or clear eyes. There is such a thing as prevailing in prayer. Like Jacob, when he said, I will not let go till you bless me. We used to talk in the Pentecostal church about praying till people prayed through. We wouldn't leave the altar till everybody was touched by the Holy Spirit when people prayed through. And I think that's been missing so much in the church today. Your eyes are too dry. When is the last time we wept for what is happening in our families or in our world? We really cried before the Lord, agonized in prayer. When Jesus prayed, he wept. Jesus wept in prayer. Tears. The Bible says that the Lord keeps our tears in a bottle. David used to say, I swim on my pillow with tears. That mighty man of God, that guy could take you out, kill people, dance before the Lord. He knew what it was to shed tears, travailing. And that's what Nehemiah did. That's the next point. 
the burden having been birth leads to prayer. What did, he, what did it say? When I heard this, verse 4, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Moved to prayer. Which, unfortunately, is one of the things the church likes to do the least. It's so sad. We don't like to pray that much. You know, when you start praying and get into the spirit, we have a prayer meeting at 8.30. We can't shut up after 50 minutes. All right, Carl? They have to say, stop. It starts to build. It starts to roll. When I was first learning how to pray, I would kneel down. I'd pray for the whole world. And then I'd stop. Be five minutes. I'm done. What else is there to pray? Then I hear these people talk about, I pray for four hours at five. I could never do that. I rarely do that now. Some people are really called to that type of inference prayer. It's not, has, not hasn't been my experience. But one time I got quiet. I said, Lord, I prayed. I've got all of my crests made before you. I've talked about the certain things. I'm going to get quiet before you. Now I want you to speak to me. I begin to think about prayer, a two-way conversation. All of a sudden, the Lord began to bring to my remembrance some of you people things that needed to be done. And the prayer went on and on as I really got into the spirit of prayer. Prayer changes things. The effectual, fervent, weeping, agony, prayer of a righteous man or woman avails much. He was trying to turn the tide in his city. Getting back to the subject. But we find in his prayer that there was some cleanup work that needed to be done in his family and his people. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commandments, listen to my prayer. Look down and see my praying night and day for your people Israel. That sounds good. Now here comes the nitty-gritty. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, my own family, and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. We're not going to be able to affect change in our family, in our world, in our nation as a church if we ourselves are not really right with the Lord. We're sinning saints. We agree that. But, you know, we try to avoid it, and as soon as it comes, we get rid of it. We repent. We turn from it as fast as we can with all of our imperfections. We aspire to be Christ-like, to be holy people so that we can be vessels worthy of the honor and usage of the Lord. Repentance was in an order. Before the church can hope to cause any effect in the world, They have to see Jesus in his church. It'll work. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. But what are we lifting up as believers? Are we unforgiving? Are we hateful? Are we harboring sin? Are we jealous? Are we envying? Are we competing with one another? Are we on power trips? Do we want to be noticed? Where is humility? All those things are sin, and they hurt the efforts of the church. In Psalms 133, it talks about the anointing and the blessedness of unity. It's like the oil that went from Aaron's beard all the way to his feet. 
We want the anointing to flow undiluted and unpolluted through us, his vessels, in order to have that power to affect change. So sometimes before we can affect things out there in the world, we've got to change things inside the church. That's why it's so sad when Christians start fighting, you know. Man, my mama used to say when the devil, when the church is fighting, devil's laughing on the ceiling. They're not going nowhere. Judgment begins in the house of God. And it's startling, especially with the leadership. He confessed his sin. Okay? We can't be the salt and the light without being vessels of honor. Now I'm going to bring something up our pastor was talking about in the last sermon. That we have to fix what's wrong in here. But in verses 8, in his prayer, he reminds God of God's promises. What did pastor say a couple weeks ago? He was standing on the promises. When he prayed and he came to himself, okay, here comes the good stuff now, Lord. You ever remind God what he's supposed to do in your life? I do. I know he don't forget, but God, remember now, you're supposed to heal. I'm praying. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, that even if you're exiled to the ends of the earth, and Israel was, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. He reminded the Lord of his promises. Remember Moses when God wanted to destroy Israel? And he taught to make, make Moses feel good. He says, you know what? I'll start a whole new nation through you. <laughs> no, Lord. If you do that, what do all the enemies of God think? If you're going to kill them, you kill me too. God listened to Moses. I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. If you have been scattered because of your sin, Nehemiah says, Lord, remember your covenant with Israel. He reminded the Lord of his promises, and he stood on the promises of God. That's the only way Nehemiah can lead a project like he's going to do. He had not much help. The people themselves were sitting down and defeat the people of God. He needed God's backing. And what he had was the promise of God. And when God says, go and do it, it doesn't matter who or don't follow. You just go and do it. And he did. He went in that power and in that authority. That's how important knowing what God's promises are in our lives. No matter what anybody else says. No matter how much they make fun of your church or your ministry or whatever, or you. We stand on the promises of God that he will restore after we repent and if we trust in him. You know, when we think about that repentance, we think of the very common scripture in 1 Chronicles 7, 14. I'm just going to paraphrase it. For the church to have its prayers answered for its nation, it has to humble themselves, seek his face, turn from their evil ways. Get that part? Then, there's a condition. Seek my face. Humble yourself. Turn from your wickedness. Then, 
I will hear from heaven and heal your lands. And so I think a lot of changing our country today and our cities really has its beginning in the house of God. I think that's where the onus really lies on the body of Christ. We keep talking about them out there. Let's talk about us in here. Let's get it right. Let's get it straight. So we'll be able to affect those people out there. It makes sense to me, doesn't it? That's scriptural. And of course, a genuine burden has a cause worthy of fighting for. I remember one of my favorite coaches in the era of Showtime, Pat Riley. When he was training the Lakers, we've got some ball players in here, by the way, and I'm looking at some of them. When he was preparing the Lakers to begin their championship run, I remember it said on one of the New Year's Eves, instead of going to a party, he invited all the Lakers, Kareem and Magic and that whole bunch, to go to the forum at 12 o'clock and to look at the arena floor. And when I read the book, the team was not happy about that on New Year's Eve to go to the Lakers to look at the floor. That's the kind of leader he was. He says, I want you to see that. I want you to commit that because we're going to bring a championship on that floor this year. And they did. And he also said something else. There comes a point in the life of a team or a church, if you want to move forward, that you have to make a stand. This is it. No turning back. We're committed. We're moving on. And this is what we're talking, a genuine burden. Anything of worth that we want to accomplish has to have a cause worthy of pursuing. What greater cause is there than the spreading of the gospel in a time when our world needs it so desperately. For many years, I ended with, sermon, uh, with letters used to write in the cause that counts because I really feel there's many causes and there's so many wonderful causes out there too that the world has, but the cause that really counts for time and eternity is the gospel of Jesus Christ and that it is spread because it brings healing and life. But look at this here. So what happens to this, uh, this gruntled, disappointed bunch of Christians, by the way, that were happy sitting in defeat? They wouldn't make a stand. If I can find it, I sure will. Yeah. So he says, uh, then I explained to the people and officials and all the people, the work is very spread out and are we are widely separated from each other along the wall. When you hear the blast of the trumpet, rush to wherever it is sounding, then our God will fight for us. That was one of the passages that he had right there to raise them up. And then, verse 14. Then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sisters, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. That's what we're battling for in our cities, in our world today. For the very life of our families, our children, our daughters, and our sons, and our future generations. The cause is great. This is a worthy cause to become involved in. So if you are a part of the church, stay a part of it. 
Pray, read the Bible, share the gospel with everyone that you have an opportunity with because the world needs the message so badly. This is the greatest cause. This is not the time for the church to be asleep. This is where the oil, the lamps need to be trimmed, ready, full of the Holy Spirit so that we can minister in power and with authority and make a difference because the gospel works. So a couple of scriptures we want to look at here. In Proverbs 14, 24, righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. Proverbs 29, 2, when the godly are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked are in power, they groan. That's the word 